Hey, Cloudcast listeners, before we get started, I want to introduce today's show sponsor, Liquid Technology. Is your company planning on migrating to the cloud, upgrading infrastructure, or relocating your IT hardware? Liquid Technologies Cloud Last is a suite of services that helps organizations move into the cloud. The Cloud Last team will de-rack, pack, and purchase your excess technology hardware. So why not increase your budget by getting money back for your excess IT equipment? In addition, Liquid Technology will ensure that your company's data is safe. They provide on- or off-site auditable data destruction services. So whether your operations are in Ashburn or Amsterdam or somewhere in between, Liquid Technology has expert knowledge in local regulations to deliver a compliant international solution to your company. Liquid Technology is an EPA-recognized dual-certified green recycler. So visit cloudlast.co slash cloudcast today, sign up for the service, and you win a Cloudlast t-shirt. And one lucky winner will receive a $100 Amazon gift card. That's cloudlast.co slash cloudcast. And now, on to the show. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to The Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, folks, it's been a good week. It's been a busy week in the cloud. And with that, we're going to get to our cloud news of the week. You know, we're going to start off. This has been an interesting year because so far the news has been kind of all over the place, which has been nice. There's been a really nice mix of of new technology and, and innovation and mergers and acquisitions and all sorts of stuff. So we're going to get started this week. A couple of Cloudcast alumni in the news. Uh, JFrog acquired Shippable this week. So adding Shippable's uh, continuous integration and delivery to JFrog's um, DevOps platform, Artifactory. So again, you know, further kind of reinforcing the idea that uh, you know the tooling around DevOps is really important. The ability to do CI and CD is really important. And uh, congratulations to uh, to both JFrog and Shippable on uh, on the acquisition. So um, you know, two cloudcast companies. It's always great to see them uh, both working together, but uh, also to see success for some of the companies we had a chance to talk to when they were very young. The second thing we had on our list, and this is an area that uh, I know a lot of people are interested in, we've talked about a little bit, um, Amazon launched their third Alexa accelerator for what they're calling conversational startups. So this is uh, Amazon working directly with Y Combinator, uh, doing kind of similar to what we did with the uh, the things over at MetLife uh, as a as a as a startup accelerator. So this is all focused on on Alexa conversations, Alexa applications, and so this is the third one uh, that's been started. So lets you know that there is uh, a growing market out there for Alexa sort of voice first, speech first applications, and, and speech becoming sort of a new uh, first class citizen in terms of a user interface. The third one, jumping over to uh, the Microsoft space, um, Azure. Connect DK. So, uh, you know, build computer vision and speech models using a developer kit with advanced AI sensors. So, uh, Microsoft making a big push um, around, you know, edge devices and AI devices and making it simpler for developers to get access to, um, you know, affordable cost, uh, cost effective, affordable hardware and software to be able to start building those models and and testing that stuff out. So, um, you know, as you're getting into uh, the space that, uh, you know, Amazon has done somewhat with things like uh, some of their technology at the edge and some of the camera technology. So the space continues to accelerate and, and the ability for developers to get involved continues to get cheaper. The last thing we had on our list was just a web a web page that we saw this week that we thought was really interesting for anybody that follows um, cloud and capex around cloud. Um, it was an article called Table Cloud Table Stakes 2018 Edition. Uh, it's from a gentleman named Charles Fitzgerald who writes 
over at Platformnomics, um, somebody who's been covering and, and really looking at and consulting around the uh, the web space for a long time, the cloud space for a long time, but really looks at the, the buying patterns, the spending patterns, and especially the CapEx patterns of Amazon Azure, uh, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, um, not just for the cloud stuff, but really kind of starting to break apart, you know, how much of that might be cloud specific versus advertising versus other services that they run. Uh, but it really kind of you know, puts a very fine point on, you know, the amount of CapEx spend that is going on within the public cloud, um, you know, for the companies that we think about as a public cloud, but also, uh, you know, the really big web scale companies. And it gives you a sense of, you know, what it's going to be like to compete. And then it may also give you a sense of, you know, if if you were trying to compete in this space, do you continue to do that, or do you start to say, look, um, you know, these are becoming the platforms of the future in terms of of the infrastructure and the buildings and power and cooling, and we need to look at building our business on top of those things as opposed to uh, to offering alternatives to them. So, um, some really good numbers there. And with that, we're going to kind of wrap up Cloud News of the Week because we have a really interesting uh, conversation this week uh, talking about service meshes. Um, so we're going to wrap up Cloud News of the Week. want to thank Datadog for being the sponsor of Cloud News of the Week. You know, today's episode is sponsored by Datadog. Datadog, is, as everybody knows, is a monitoring platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications. They provide dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management all in one very tightly integrated platform so you can get end-to-end visibility very quickly. And it's not just generic monitoring. It's really, um, if you're in an AWS environment, it allows you to seamlessly integrate with AWS so you can start monitoring and visualizing EC2, RDS, ECS, any of your AWS services in minutes, um, get them up and running, see what's going on with them, fix them, make them faster, all the things that you want out of your uh, monitoring platform tightly integrated with AWS. So if you want to go try it for yourself, if you want to try out a free 14-day trial with Datadog, um, our listeners can go to datadog.com slash cloudcast. And not only are you going to get a free 14-day trial, but you're going to get an awesome free Datadog t-shirt. So once again, go to datadog.com slash cloudcast, sign up for the free 14-day trial, get the awesome t-shirt, and start using Datadog to help monitor your environments, especially your AWS environments. So with that, I want to thank Datadog for sponsoring Cloud News of the Week. And we're going to get to our show and get to our awesome uh, interview with the folks from HashiCorp talking about service meshes. And we're back, Aaron. It's, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to dig in today to, uh, to a topic that I think for a lot of people is going to be sort of new, but we're going to do it with uh, kind of an old, old friend of the show. Uh, it's good to have the folks from HashiCorp back. So uh, very, very excited to have Arman Dadgar, who is CTO and co-founder of HashiCorp. Arman, welcome back to the show, or actually welcome to the show, longtime uh, HashiCorp fans of the show. Thanks so much. And I know uh, Mitchell's been on a few times, so glad that I was able to make it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, it's been a couple of years. I know if, if people have listened to the show for a while, it's been a couple of years um, since anyone from HashiCorp has been on. Mitchell's been on. Um, some other folks have been on to talk about things. Kind of give us a, a state of, of where is HashiCorp these days. I know there was some really big news a couple of months ago, um, you know, $100 million round of funding and and uh, big valuation. But, you know, kind of where's the company? Because uh, we, we've been following you guys since it was really just you and Mitchell and, and Vagrant. So um, give folks a status update on how things have grown and, and where things are going. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, things have evolved a little bit since we were just the Vagrant company, for sure. Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of folks, I think, know us more in some sense for the products than they even know the company, right? I think so it's almost easier to talk about it through the lens of the tools, Right, I think Vagrant is probably uh, the oldest and, and possibly still the most well-known tool. But I think the kind of core focus has moved on to more cloud infrastructure for us. Right, yeah, so particularly sure. around 
you know, Terraform for provisioning of infrastructure, Vault as a security tool, a console to do sort of networking and service mesh, Nomad as our sort of deployment. So I think the big focus for us is really, hey, everyone's trying to go to cloud and you know, adopt sort of these more agile DevOps practices. What do I need from a tooling perspective to actually do that, right? Whether I'm talking about provisioning or security or networking or the application runtime itself. And that's sort of our big focus is, is those categories. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And and just like you'd said, you know, we we both have worked with and you hear all the time, especially Vagrant and then Terraform. And, and we're hearing more and more about console. And that's why we wanted to really kind of talk about service mesh a, a little bit um, today and just kind of help everyone wrap their head around it. Because I think... Uh, everyone kind of sort of understands it at a high level and, and, uh, and we put it in the show notes, but we'll go back, you know, just a little bit ago to, you did a video called what is a service mesh? And it's a, it's, it's a longer video, but I, but it was really great from a helps everyone put together all the jigsaw puzzle pieces, um, you know, and, and all the things service mesh can be and everything to, you know, consider and all of that. But if you don't mind, maybe for those that haven't seen it, kind of take that uh, apart a little bit. And, and when we say service mesh, like what are the some some of the things you're thinking about, Armin? Yeah, you know, I think for me, the way I like to talk about it is let's set the buzzwords aside and just talk about very concrete problems, Right. Because uh, I think those are the most useful in terms of trying to understand the problem. So, you know, the way I think about it is, first of all, it starts by saying, what's the architecture of the application, right? And what I mean by that is a service mesh really only makes sense if I have multiple applications, right? If I'm a single giant monolith, you know, save your, save your efforts, right? But the moment I say, hey, I have multiple apps, I have my web server, I have my, you know, front-end API, my back-end API, and these things need to interact with each other, Right? That sort of casual statement of these things need to interact with each other is, you know, all the devil, uh, you know, is with the details of that, right? And so I think if you sort of double click on that and say, I have a set of services and, you know, they need to, you know, make API calls to one another, right? Then I think there's a few problems you end up with right away, right? The first one is, how does my web server find the API server, right? Where is the API server running? It's somewhere on the network, Right. And I think you have a few approaches there, which is one, you know, sort of old standby <laughs> is just hard code the IP address of the API, right? So the web server just hard codes and says, anytime I want the API, I go talk to IP1, right? You know, that's obviously super brittle because if I redeploy the API and it ends up on IP2, well, I broke the web server, right? So I think classically you see that get fixed by saying, great, I'll put a load balancer in between. IP1 takes me to the load balancer and now my load balancer takes me to the API. So if I move the API around, you know, no one, the web server won't notice, right? Because the load balancer will sort of shield them from that. So I think, you know, and, and there's a version of that where you say it's a DNS name, right? I always talk to, you know, you know API.internal and that resolves me to a DNS name. Uh, and so I'm sort of shielded. The challenge I think we tend to see, though, is all of those tr- methods are either sort of fragile, if we're talking about sort of hard coding an IP, or they tend to require sort of manual operations, right? So I'm manually updating my load balancer or I'm manually updating sort of these DNS records uh, as these, the application changes. So I think the core focus of sort of console or, or sort of a service mesh in general is really more about network automation, right? It's how do you think about it and say, 
my application is the center of the universe, right? And my network is really just in service of the application. So if I deploy a new version of my API, I automatically want to update the load balancer. I automatically want to update the firewall. My downstream web server should not notice uh, that I scaled up, scaled down, deployed a new version. Right? I want to shield that by automating the network uh, around it. And I think that's the sort of beating heart of the problem. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a good starting point, and uh, you know I'll come back to the to the video that you did, and we'll have it in the show notes for folks. We we definitely recommend people go take a look at it. Yeah, you know, you you start with the idea that you say, look, um, you've got a bunch of applications; they they need to work together. We need to to better orchestrate the network to keep track of where they are and so forth. And then it starts to kind of build on that, where you go, well, you know, we'd also like to make sure that the communication between them is secure. We'd like to make sure that, uh, you know, I can authenticate that if this front end is supposed to talk to the database, but nothing else, we can we can authenticate that. Can you kind of walk us through beyond the basic um, kind of network orchestration? When do the next levels start kind of getting built into something that would be a service mesh? Totally. Yeah, I think that becomes the sort of uh, the detail within the detail, <laughs> right, which is you're right, which is. It's not just that very high level of, okay, great, can they talk to one another? I think within that, you get into sort of, I think, two then subcategories of problem, right? One category is, how do I start to do sort of more fine grain level seven routing, right? And when we talk about level seven, think like URL path-based, right? So when I say, you know, if someone comes to hashicorp.com slash sign up, let's just say, maybe I have a dedicated sign up service uh, that they go to. Versus if they go to hashicorp.com slash, you know, you know, pay my bills, right? Then they might go to our billing service, let's just say. Um, and so in that, what we're really saying is, okay, there's a, maybe one logical service, hashicorp.com, but there's these sort of subservices that are important, and we're going to route the request differently uh, based on did they want to go to sign up or did they want to go to sort of bill pay? And I think that's where you talk about these sort of level seven type capabilities to say, okay, I want to be able to assign these routes, right? like slash sign up that goes to this service or slash, you know, view my invoices goes to this other service. I think that's sort of one category of what a service mesh focuses on is how do I define those routes? How do I map those to a dynamic set of, diff- of services that may be coming and going, scaling up and down? And then how do I connect that back to my API gateway or my load balancer that's actually managing the traffic, right? So that's one side of it. I think the other side of it is what are the security implications of this, right? Maybe you know, my, you know, front end web server is the, you know, is allowed to talk to the API service, but only the API service is allowed to talk to my billing server, right? My web server should not be able to randomly talk to the billing service and charge someone's credit card. So, you know, then the question becomes, well, how do you enforce that? How do you enforce who can actually talk to who, right? I think historically, the way we would have solved that was with firewalls, right? You would have deployed a firewall uh, in front of the billing service, And then you'd say, okay, well, the IP of the API is allowed, but the IP of the web server is not allowed, right? And the problem with that is, you know, in a cloud world or a containerized world, it's even worse. Those are dynamic, right? So if I'm using Kubernetes, you know, I don't even know what the IP is going to be until it's already deployed. And then it might move around five minutes later, right? Or if I'm using an auto-scaling group and, you know, Azure or AWS, right, the IP might change as I scale up and down these services. So if I'm managing a set of IP rules of who can do what, that gets super, super painful, right? So I think the other side of what a service mesh looks at is to say, how do I get that same access control without the firewall, right? And what we do is tie that back to the identity and really say, 
the web server as an identity, as a logical thing, is not allowed to talk to the billing server. The API as a logical thing is allowed to talk to it, right? And when I say logical, what we're saying is it doesn't matter to me is there one, 10, or 50 of the API server. All 50 logically are the same API service and can talk to the billing service. And so I think that's the second side of a service mesh is really looking at that and saying, can you solve that by baking in the identity of an application into certificates, right, TLS certificates, and then using that identity and the TLS handshake to basically say, yes or no, is the service allowed to talk to me? So the nice advantage is you end up with encrypting of all your traffic, right, because you're using TLS everywhere. But you also shift away from managing sort of this IP as a unit of security to the, the sort of logical identity of your service, which is just way more sane. <laughs> yeah, and that makes perfect sense. And so, so Armin, help help us out then with okay, if once we understand what these are, the next you know um, stage, if you will, a lot of times is 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 folks are out there just want to maybe kick the tires or start doing evaluations. And and so as you're talking to people in the market, you know, how do you consider evaluating say console and then there's Istio and there's Envoy and there's all these variations out there in the market today. So how do you then start to, to make sense of all of that? Yeah. I, I mean, I think in some sense it's, you know, I think the first thing that might just be helpful is uh, I'll spend two seconds, I think, clarifying. You know, I think it's important to make the distinction between the control plane and the data plane, right? And what I mean by that is the responsibility of the control plane is to give us sort of a centralized API that we can talk to uh, to register services and manage the policy of, you know, what apps can talk to what other apps. Um and then to use that central information to configure the data plane, right? So the data plane then is responsible for running everywhere. And, you know, it's called the data plane because it's the thing actually copying the bits around, right? It sees the data itself. So when we talk about, for example, a console, console is very much a control plane. And it might pair with, you know, Envoy uh, as a data plane option, right? I might also use hardware devices, right? Maybe I'm using an F5 with my data plane, Right. So I think it's important to tease out that distinction between control and data, right? So for you know you can use Envoy; it's a native integration with console. But you can also use Nginx or HA proxy, right? So there's other options there at the data plane layer. Versus, I think when we talk about you know a system like Istio, uh, Istio you can also think about it as a two-layer system, right? There's it also uses Envoy as its uh, data plane, but it's really a control plane at its heart. So I think that's one use clarification just for people to have a mental model of control versus data plane. But, you know, to answer your original question, like how should, how do people navigate this? I think it's about, you know, you have to understand your requirement. Istio, you know, it's born out of the Kubernetes universe. That's really their focus area. So if you're all in on everything's Kubernetes, that might be the right starting point for you. It's, you know, it might be integrated with the platform. It's all there uh, and it's a tight connection. I think for us with console, our big focus was saying, you know, what about folks who have mixed fleets? Right. If I have some of my stuff in VMs, some of my stuff in Kubernetes, some of it running in, you know, serverless with AWS Fargate, right? I I need something that will bridge those kind of different homogeneous or sorry, heterogeneous platforms. And so that's been our focus. So I think part of it is just understanding what's your state look like. If my, you know, if I'm just starting out, I'm all on GKE choice. It's built in, try it out, kick the tires, right? If you say I have this mixed mode right, of these different things that they need to interoperate together, then console might be, a, you know, a more logical start point. 
Yeah, <clears throat> no, that, that that's helpful. And I think, yeah, for anybody who's done architecture design, thinking control plane versus data plane, you know, starts to become sort of common topics that you that you think about all the time. Um, you, you know, as you're as you're ta- as you're sort of walking through this, it's it's dawning on me. Um, you know, you're talking about well, you know, we used to you used to put. Um, you'd have somebody managing DNS and then you had to think about, you know, where would I put a load balancer? And then you think about, you know, where would a firewall go? And I'm, and I'm starting to wonder like who, who in your experience is kind of the buyer or the decision maker, um, you know, in a, in a, in a service mesh, because to some extent it feels very, you know, network and security and ops centric, but at the same time, like, you know, it, it has a big impact on how applications work. So like, wh- how have you seen that evolve or who, who's making decisions versus influencing around these kind of technologies? Yeah, it's a super good question. And I feel like uh, almost the same set of issues we grappled with, with containers, which is, you know, I think you always, there's four key constituents, right, with an IT, right? You have your developers, your ops folks, security, and your networking teams. And in some sense, everything that we talk about with an IT is usually sort of inescapably touches all four of them, right? So when we talk about sort of a service mesh typology at that intersection for a few different reasons, right? Which is, one, you probably have your ops team who's deploying uh, the service mesh and integrating applications with it. Two, in most large organizations, you're going to have a separation of responsibilities so that the security team is responsible for who's allowed to talk to who, right? You, you know, if you're a public company, you must have a separation of concerns legally, right? So your security team is probably doing that independently. Then you have your networking team who has to figure out how does this, you know, integrate with, you know, maybe my hardware devices like load balancers and firewalls, but also what's the impact to just my core network, right? Or network design. And then from a developer standpoint, if I'm saying I'm launching my new, you know, sign-up service, I want to make sure slash sign-up routes to that. So there's a developer concern as well. So you're totally right. It touches all of these people. And I think the shift that we're trying to kind of go through, right, is if you look at, you know, how did this work in the world of operations, you know, before we started talking about infrastructure as code and containers was you had these vertical silos, right? And you'd file a ticket against each of them to get something done, right? I'd file a ticket against the VM team, they give me a VM. Then I file a ticket to deploy my app, then it's on the thing. Then I file a ticket against firewall team, they open up a, a port to it. And I think what we've seen shift is saying, you know what, the right answer is you have a platform that has a series of APIs, and you use that to bring the concerns of all the different people, uh, but they plug it in sort of programmatically as opposed to filing tickets, right? So I think, you know, making that concrete with a system like, let's just talk about console, you might have an ops team that deploys console, but then you give the administrative privilege to security team for them to actually be able to specify who's allowed to talk to who. But you give permission to your development team to register a path and say, slash sign up goes to you know, this application. And then your networking team is consuming you know, what applications are running and using that to drive load balancer or firewall automation. So you're sort of shifting from saying, I'm going to use filing of tickets to coordinate between these different teams to... No, there's a set of APIs that are brokering access. Between- yeah, that's that's a fantastic explanation. Thank you, Armin. So, but I'm also thinking through a little bit of okay, you know, when when you have kind of the, some of these emerging technologies, they all start with a a certain set of you know core features or initial features, and then over time, the industry kind of solidifies and everything kind of you know converges together in the end, if you will. And and so, what I'm also wondering is, you know, console uh, has from as you mentioned, service discovery into this full service mesh. Um, 
And because of that, it's, you know, you've got authentication issues, you've got security issues that you've talked about. When some of the others that are out there might be maybe a little bit more routing centric and, and, so are there kind of, you know, I would say, what are the emerging customer use cases um, that, that you're seeing initially where console is a, is a really good fit? And then uh, kind of a follow on is, is are we, you know, if you kind of put your, your crystal ball, look into your crystal ball for a second, are we going to see some level of convergence on these features and these specializations longer term? Yeah, I think both really good questions. Um you know, I think you nailed it, which is, I think, the the sort of angle that we came at this from, because console we launched in 2014, uh, so sort of predated all these conversations around service mesh, um, really was that focus on, hey, if I'm going to go DevOps and have these different teams deploying apps at different rates, they have to bind together somehow, right? Like at runtime in, the, in production, they have to talk to each other. And, and so service discovery became the sort of the key initial focus for us. I think... You know, as use cases are maturing and we're seeing people get increasingly sophisticated, you know, the the layering on is, you know, step two is, you know, great. We used to say security is an exercise left to reader, you know, solve that in the network with firewalls. I think that became the next piece that we said, you know, we're going to bite that off and say console will give you a solution to doing sort of identity and TLS based security. Right. I think the next level where we're sort of starting pushed on uh, by, by sort of the bleeding edge of users is that type of level seven fine-grained routing. So I think the angle that we came at it from was very much discovery first, then security sort of routing as kind of the final piece. I think some of these other groups, to your point, started at other points, but I think they will all converge to, you know, really what we're looking at is what's the core set of functions that we use to solve in our network with hardware? And really all of that's flipping over to saying, those core set of functions still need to be solved, but we want to do it with software, right? And so it's really, it's routing, it's load balancing, it's security, it's, you know, it's WAF, right, sort of web firewall type stuff. So I think those are going to be the kind of core concerns uh, uh, that you're going to converge on because, you know, we've been running networks for 30 years and, you know, we kind of know what are the core network-shaped problems. Yeah, no, it's that's, that's very helpful. I, let, let me ask you one last question because we've been talking a lot about kind of conceptually what do service meshes do, how have they evolved – um, can you give us any examples of, of company, it doesn't have to be a specific company, but kind of some of the customers you've worked with where, you know, they, they had some problem and, and either sort of service discovery or the evolution towards service mesh capabilities help them. So people have a sense of like, oh, okay, I, I might have a problem like that. This is where it would start to make sense. Yeah, totally. So I, you know, I can talk concretely about, uh, so UBS bank. Uh, it's a big customer of ours. They spoke publicly at our conference, so this is why I can sort of uh, share some of their detail there. Um, and so I think they're a great example of what you see, which is, you know, they invested a lot in sort of the CI/CD type process of we want to be able to deliver these hundreds of microservices independently and have developer agility. Their problem was great. We could deploy super quickly, but then we file a ticket and we wait six weeks on average uh, before the first byte of traffic hits our service, Right. And so you have this sort of challenge of, great, we've invested all this money in automation, but until you do it end-to-end, right, until you go all the way from the app is deployed to the app actually is secured to the app gets traffic, you know, it doesn't matter if you're as slow as the weakest link in the chain, right? So that was an area where they brought in console, right, and they sort of described their crawl, walk, run journey of just using it first for visibility, then using it for service discovery, then using it for 
driving of API gateway and load balancer automation. And for them, what they were ultimately able to do was bring that time down to like five seconds, right? Because the service came up, it got auto-registered in console, that drove all the downstream automation for all the network appliances in the middle. And so they went from app deployed to app getting traffic in five seconds down from six weeks. So I think, you know, that is a super, super concrete ROI, which is like, yeah, you're hundreds of different teams. Now they're not just twiddling their thumbs waiting for, you know, networks to get updated, right? Uh, you know, and so I think, you know, what's the shape of their environment that means that that's valuable? It's A, you have to have multiple independent development teams, right? If you only have, you know, one team, one service, you probably don't have a lot of these network shape problems, right? And the more teams and more services you have, the more exacerbated this problem probably is. Uh, but then two, you know, you know, are you operating in an environment that is sort of mixed where you, you know, have these manual processes. I think if you're, you know, some of these companies that are, you know, more born in the cloud, super cloud native, you know, where everything, you know, you know, they're just, you know, Terraform the moment it deploys an app, auto updates, you know, the Amazon ELB, and it's all tied into their infrastructure code. You know, maybe this problem just seems foreign to them. They're like, I don't even have that problem <laughs> uh, because it's so automated already. But I think a lot of people are in a, that transition phase where, you know, maybe they've automated their app deploy, but their network is not, right? And this fills that gap. For the people who are even still pure cloud native, I think their benefit is more sort of security oriented, right? Which is how do you actually secure those environments in a dynamic way? Because I think oftentimes what we see there is giant flat networks, right? Any app can talk to any app. It's a relatively sort of free for all within the data center. Uh, and I think there the benefit is, okay, how do you move away from that to a sort of a zero trust model of every app explicitly is authorized to talk to their upstream uh, rather than the sort of free for all. No, makes makes a lot of sense, Aaron. I know go, going into this conversation, I was like, I, you know, I, I hope I, I hope I learn a little bit. I think I think Armand's done a really good job of kind of laying out both the basics, but also kind of the really important architecture stuff to think about. Agreed, agreed, and and yeah, just as a reminder to everyone, you know, we covered a, a, a certainly a good bit of what was covered in the video, but but go take a look at the uh, the service mesh uh, video uh, that Armand did as well. I I think. Um, today is a fantastic uh, learning resource for those out there. Yeah. So Arman, thank you so much for the time today and, and definitely all the explanation. I know, you know, this is a, a technology that's that's getting a lot of buzz, but more importantly, it's going to potentially impact a lot of different groups within within data centers, within clouds, within within organizations. So thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Aaron, for having me. Listen, folks. All right. With that, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, thank you to uh, Armand and, and for myself and Aaron. Uh, thank you as always for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for rating the show on iTunes. And with that, we're gonna wrap it up. We will talk to you next week, and we will. Thank you for listening to the Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 